It's Tech Fighter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 277 for January 29th, 2012. This week, a look at Android apps. Mega Upload is dead. Concern about Google's new privacy policies. And in short circuits, look who likes Android. And PC Anywhere seems to be going nowhere. Lots of useful apps are available for Android tablets. And now that I'm a new user, I've started to find some that are indispensable. But there are also some apps that have no apparent reason to exist. Not useful, not amusing, not fun, and not discussed here. Let's take a look at some that I think you might like if you have or plan to get an Android tablet. At the top of the heap, one that is definitely useless but fun, Talking Tom. It's a cat. He just stands there. You can tickle him, you can scratch his tummy, you can rub his ears, do some of those and he'll purr, do others and he'll hiss. You can have a dog explode a paper bag behind him or poke him on the nose. There's a free version, but for 99 cents you get some extra features. In both the free and paid versions, Talking Tom listens to you and repeats your words, hence the name Talking Tom. You can also record a video with him and send it to someone. Now here's one that's useful, Kindle for Android. I have a Kindle, but I also have Kindle reader apps on every computer I own, and also on the Android tablet. Books purchased from Amazon automatically show up depending on licensing on the Kindle and all devices with the reader. It is, of course, a free application. Here's an application you'll definitely want if you type. It's called Thumb Keyboard. Trouble with the basic keyboard design on tablets is the retention of the standard QWERTY layout. That's fine if the tablet's lying on a table in front of you, but most of us interact with tablets while holding them, and therefore we tend to type with our thumbs. A standard QWERTY layout doesn't really work for that because a lot of the important keys are right in the center of the keyboard. Thumb keyboard places the numbers in the center, the numbers out near the edges. The QWERTY layout is maintained, but now all of the letters are within reach of your thumbs. This application does a lot more than just that, but if that's all it did, it'd be worth more than the $2.30 price tag. Yeah, $2.30. StumbleUpon is an extraordinary time waster. If you have a StumbleUpon account on your desktop computer, you'll probably want the free StumbleUpon app on your Android tablet. And when you have a few minutes to spare and no projects that fit the time available, stumbling around can be interesting. Sometimes it's even educational. The application is free. Are you a Google Docs user? Generally, I'm not, but I might become one because of this. Google Docs application for Android devices really could be pretty helpful. You can manage and edit Google Documents from wherever you are. When collaboration and sharing are important, the Google Docs applications really are good choices. Word processor, spreadsheet, presentations, all of those are included. You can read PDFs, and you can use your tablet's built-in camera to take a picture that you can then incorporate into a document. 
Listen to music on your Android tablet? If so, you're definitely going to want PowerAmp. The tablet has a built-in audio player. But PowerAmp is kind of the difference between a no-frills player and something you'll actually enjoy listening to. There's a free trial, but I suspect you'll end up paying the 5 bucks for this application. PowerAmp supports most audio file formats, MP3, MP4, M4A, that's Apple's format, the open-source OGG, WMA, FLAC, WAVE, APE, VW, AIFF, that's another Apple format, TTA, and probably some that I've missed. Add cover art display, gapless playback, and a great user interface, and you have a player that lands on my must-have list. You can get a terminal emulator. This would be essential for Linux geeks, probably useless or maybe even dangerous for others. Below the Android's graphical user interface, you'll find Linux. You might want to modify something at the operating system level. Or you might want to use Linux to perform some tasks that aren't available through the GUI. But if terms such as Vi, Grep, Cat, and Top are meaningless to you, this doesn't apply. A terminal is free. You'll also probably want to download at least one browser to replace or augment the built-in browser application. I have both Firefox and Opera. Both are free. If you use Google Earth on your desktop or notebook computer, I suspect you'll want the equivalent application on your tablet. Tablets are outstanding places to keep reference materials. For example, I have a dictionary and reference works for HTML5, PHP, Linux, jQuery, and several other applications. Many news organizations have Android applications. My short list is the Columbus Dispatch, New York Times, Associated Press, CNN, NPR, Huffington Post, Slate, Columbus Business First, Al Jazeera, USA Today, and several news aggregators that provide links to smaller newspapers all around the world. I can even read the Bellfountain Examiner on my tablet. Oh, and one more thing you're going to want. It's not an app, but you really need one. Your shiny new tablet will quickly become covered with fingerprints, grease, and other gunk from your hands, particularly if you use the tablet while eating. So you need a microfiber cloth. Spend a couple of bucks to buy one. I recently bought three 12-inch square cloths for about 10 bucks. They can be used dry to wipe away your basic fingerprints, slightly dampened if you need to eliminate traces of lunch. have shut down Mega Upload. This proves that even without SOPA and PIPA, the federal government can shut down sites that offer illegal access to copyrighted materials. The Hong Kong site was clearly an illegal operation. Or was it? Might it be that Mega Upload was the victim of what off the internet would have been called a police riot? There's no question that Mega Upload was a haven for stolen files, but it was also used by people who wanted to make their office files available for use at home. Several other online services could find themselves accused of similar illegal actions. You send it, send your files, send this file, files anywhere, all offer similar capabilities. If you have a large file that you want someone else to have, these services are invaluable. But even applications such as Carbonite could be accused of making illegal files available 
because those who use the backup service can make the files available to others. Ira Rothkin is the attorney who represents Mega Upload in the United States. He says, and I quote, the allegations are without merit and Mega Upload is going to vigorously defend against the case. Well, what about services like Flickr or Photobucket? Both of these sites and lots of others allow subscribers to upload large files that can then be downloaded by others. Mega Upload's terms of service say that illegal uploads are not welcome, and the site offered a link that copyright holders could use to report abuse. Instead of shutting down the entire site, would it have been more reasonable to pursue those who illegally posted copyrighted information? According to the Department of Justice, it was difficult for copyright owners to search for illegal materials. CNN reported, in an unofficial sampling of CNN tech readers on Twitter, many quickly acknowledged using the site to watch TV shows or movies, but others cited legitimate uses, with some saying that they have lost legitimate content, not to mention money, after the government crackdown. The CNN report quotes Sang Ong of Boston, who says he paid more than $250 for a lifetime membership so that he could store old files from childhood and college. He didn't lose them, the report said, but now he's got nothing in return for his payment. And CNN also quotes open-source software developers and musicians who say they use Mega Upload to store their personal files. Oh well, collateral damage, I guess. We had to destroy the village in order to save it. changing its privacy policies so that they will be consistent across most of the company's offerings. This will be more convenient for users, Google says, but security experts caution that the new policies will also make more of your information available to advertisers. And guess what? Everybody is right. If the CIA or the FBI knew as much about you as Google does, you'd probably be concerned, and rightly so. Because Google handles so much information for so many people, the company has unprecedented access to information about what you search for, what you buy, what maps you look at, where you live, who your friends are, who you communicate with, where you are right now if you have an Android device, and that list goes on and on. These days you can think of Google as sort of a superset of U.S. intelligence agencies, Interpol, the Mossad, Russia's Federal Security Service, formerly the KGB, Britain's MI5 and MI6, and China's National Security Bureau. Is it good for one company to have all this information and to have all this information available for its own use and for the use of its customers? And you're not its customers. The advertisers are its customers. Can something that benefits advertisers also benefit Google users? Google says the changes will make its privacy policies easier to read. Well, that's true. Instead of dozens of policies, each with different stipulations, there will now be just one primary policy and a few special conditions for some of the services. Google says the changes will make data from one service that a user has signed up for available in other products and that this will improve the user's experience. This is also true, but not the entire truth. It will give advertisers a much better way to pitch products and services to you. But is that bad? Advertisers have known since the beginning of advertising that a lot of money spent on advertising is wasted. 
How much is wasted depends on lots of things. One of the primary considerations is who sees the pitch. If you try to sell me cigars, your money is wasted. Tell me about a new beer or an electronic device, well, you might get my attention. So, the underlying issue is whether it's good for advertisers to be able to closely target consumers who will be interested in the product or service, and whether it's good or bad for consumers to see advertisements that might be of interest to them. As an advertiser, I want to spend my money wisely. As a consumer, I don't want to be bombarded with ads that are of no interest to me. So it looks like a win-win solution. But, as a consumer, I would actually prefer not to be bombarded by advertisements at all. Still, if I must be bombarded by ads, and I will be because that's the way capitalism works, then I guess I'd prefer that the ads promote something I'm at least interested in. Reducing Google's many privacy policies to a single document is probably overall a good thing, but I'm not sure that I want YouTube data and Google Docs data to be merged. For me, it's not an issue, really, because I've never used Google Docs for much more than some basic testing and evaluation. That is to say that I don't have anything important online in Google Docs. And although I say truthfully that I rarely use Gmail, I do forward mail from most accounts to Gmail because that provides an easily accessible online repository of messages. What is of concern to most people is that just about everything you see and do on the Internet will be available to Google. If you use Google's products, you provide information when you sign up. Google has access about your data use and storage. Google can link together information about all Google services that you use. If you have an Android device, Google can determine your location. Google knows what applications are installed on your Android device. Using Google's dashboard and ad manager, you can specify what you want to see and what you want to omit, but you cannot opt out. The fact that Google has so much information isn't new. What's new is Google's decision to combine data across services, quoting Google, for your convenience. The changes go into effect on March 1st. On a Google blog, Director of Privacy for Product and Engineering Alma Whitten Explain the policy this way, and I quote, If you're signed in, we may combine information you've provided from one service with information from other services. We'll treat you as a single user across all of our products, which means a simpler, more intuitive Google experience. End quote. Between now and March 1st, expect to receive messages from Google about the changes and to see the changes explained on the company's various services. If you don't like the policy, you do have a choice. One choice, close your account. Google says that closing your Google account will delete your various Google services. How long data remains online or on backup, though, isn't directly addressed. If you have a lot of information saved in Google services, for example, Gmail or Picasa, then Google says it will provide directions on how to retrieve or move the information. And if you use Google only for searching, relax you are not affected by the policy.
In short circuits, you may have heard that Steve Wozniak likes Android phones, but you may not have heard the entire story. In an interview with Dan Lyons on The Daily Beast, Steve Wozniak admitted that his Android phone offers more features than his iPhone. This is in contrast to the other Apple co-founder, the late Steve Jobs, who loathed the Android device and threatened to bankrupt Apple if that's what he had to do to kill Android. Well, the vendetta clearly didn't work, and now the other Steve is saying nice things about the Android. Well, you may have heard that part, and it is a significant admission, but the rest of the story is this. Wozniak still considers the iPhone to be the better overall device because of its ease of use. Even so, though, he says Android has moved ahead of Apple in several important ways. A quote from the Daily Beast regarding his iPhone. I love the beauty of it, but I wish it did all the things my Android does. On the issue of which device is easier to use, Wozniak says Android devices are harder to use than the iPhone, but, again quoting, if you're willing to do a little work to understand it, there's more available. Lyons writes that Android could do to Apple's mobile operating system, iOS, what Microsoft Windows did to the Macintosh in the 1990s. Microsoft triumphed because it licensed its software to many different hardware makers and ultimately had a much greater market share than Apple, which would only sell its operating system on its own hardware. If you'd like to read the entire Daily Beast article, you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you use Symantec's PC Anywhere to work on remote computers, Symantec says you should disable it right away and wait for a patch update. The shady group known as Anonymous broke into Symantec's servers, that's embarrassing, and made off with the source code for PC Anywhere, even more embarrassing. So Symantec really had no choice other than to warn people not to use one of its products. Symantec, of course, is one of the leading companies that provides computer security for its clients. Even more embarrassing, though, is this fact. The break-in by Anonymous didn't happen this week, or even this month, or even last year. It happened in 2006, and nobody at Symantec was aware of the problem until Anonymous announced that it had done the deed. So now, Symantec has published some background information and some suggestions for its clients. The background is this. Symantec believes that source code for the 2006-era versions of the following products was exposed. Norton Antivirus Corporate Edition, Norton Internet Security, Norton System Works, which includes Norton Utilities and Norton Goback, and PC Anywhere. The suggestions are these. To limit risk from external sources, customers should disable or remove PC Anywhere Access Server, and use remote sessions via secure VPN tunnels. Client management suite and IT management suite customers should modify or remove all policies relying on access server. And as a follow-up, a tweet by Yama Tuff, who claims to speak for Anonymous, said, Was the 2006 theft perpetrated by someone now affiliated with Anonymous? Was there a secondary breach last year? If so... We should expect to find out in roughly 2017. Ouch. 
The full white paper from Symantec is on Symantec's website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.